Hello, and welcome to Barks Remarks, the podcast where we talk about the stories from the legendary Carl Barks, creator of Scrooge McDuck and writer and artist of the greatest Donald and Scrooge comics of all time. Join us as we explore his longer adventure stories in their chronological publishing order. We'll talk about what makes them so enduring, their historical context, and how well they hold up today. So get out your reprint and get ready to enjoy our remarks. Welcome back to Bark's Remarks. I'm Mark Severino, a grown man who still enjoys Donald Duck comics, and I'm joined by a returning guest, um, returning guest and her cat. Why don't you introduce yourselves? Clorox is on my lap. I hope his purrs are not too overwhelming. And my name is Sarah Santiago. Thanks so much, Sarah, for coming back. We're going to be talking about the landmark story in old California today. And, and I'm very excited. This is a very famous story among Carl Barks fans, among fans of Donald Duck comics. To me, it's it's reminiscent of the one that we um, we recorded recently when we talked about Dangerous Disguise in that it's it's a bit of a more mature story. And I'm excited to talk about this one because there is a lot to cover. There is a lot to cover. This is a story that stands out for a lot of people. I think a lot of people really remember it fondly. I feel like I should be upfront about my own feelings with this story, which is that I do really like this one, but I don't cherish it as much as a lot of Duck fans do. I I I get I think I understand why this one ranks so highly and is so well remembered. But much like Dangerous Disguise, I'm wondering if I like read this one when I was a little bit too young, because this one seems geared towards more of an older audience for me. Nostalgia isn't something you can sell to children. That's yeah. for sure. And this was so full of nostalgia. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you said that because it's a great point. You know, this this is really a, a hugely nostalgic work for him. It is is very focused on the past and, and dwelling on this sort of like forgotten ideal. So let's talk about this story. This was published. Cover date was March of 1951, and it appeared in four color number 328. It has about the average number of reprints, eight, including the original publication, and it's a 28 pager. So um, on the longer side, and this story is basically um, it's a sort of fever dream, right? Where I, sometimes Barks likes to do this thing where he'll have the ducks go back to a past without actually doing the trope of time traveling. But there's there's a few stories in his works where he'll do this. In some respect, they travel through a vision or, you know, through psychedelics or hallucinogenic drugs in this one <laughs> back to, to the past. And it's going to be this like shared dream of theirs. So it's it's very weird. It's very unusual, very nostalgic, um, quite lovely. I was surprised how similar it felt to nostalgia for about that time period that appeared later on. But it's it's really interesting how we're taught to view the past as children you're, you're through right. the way these adults are ex experiencing nostalgia amongst themselves yeah, and repackaging totally. it for children. Like happy days, right? Yeah, people, people love to do this. They love to package nostalgia. It's always the past. It's always the good old days. It's always, you know, in, in the 80s, the 50s were the good old days. And in the 50s, <laughs> Gold Rush era California was the good old days, right? 
Yeah, and and for Karl Barks, right? You can tell that for him, nostalgia is before California um, turned into what it what it was on its way to being in the fifties, and that just accelerated it hugely. I'll take a moment here to say that I'm a Californian. I am perfect to to talk about this story. Um, I was born in the eighties in the Bay Area, so like a lot of this story is really this digested version of the California history quote that we got spoon fed to us in fourth grade history class. You know, that I was like, oh my gosh, this is beat for beat. So much of the stuff that I learned about in school and you get older and you start to learn that, you know, the, the backbone of some of that stuff is true, but of course it's leaving a lot out. History is written by winners. And, and this is really nostalgizing and fetishizing us a kind of past that probably was never really the case in California, but you can tell that um, Karl Barks is already recognizing where California is heading with the uh, the beginning of the story and, and the congestion and the sprawl. And I, I understand the instinct to pine for that sort of simpler time. Yeah, it, it's definitely a very human instinct. I listened to a podcast Um, It's now called Build for Tomorrow, but it used to be called The Pessimist's Archive. And he started to kind of look into when was this time period when America was great. And he traced back to the beginning of writing itself. The Romans had their own version of, ah, the good old days. Things now just aren't the way they used to be. I pine for these old days. That kind of nostalgia is extremely human. Right. Every generation likes to complain about the one that comes after it. <laughs> so let me um, let me talk about a little bit of the background trivia because there's a there's a good amount of it. I did mention that this is one of the best reviewed, best regarded of Bark stories. Um, we'll we'll get to the actual ranking later, but I will note that if you kind of pull out only the Donald Duck stories as opposed to the Uncle Scrooge ones, this is his third best regarded or best remembered Donald Duck story. The only ones that are ahead of it in the rankings are Lost in the Andes and The Golden Helmet. It's just barely ahead of Vacation Time. And and there's a good few quotes about this one. Um, <laughs> In a 1962 interview, we had one of those moments, Sarah, where he indicated that this was his favorite story, the one that he thought was his best. And and I'm chuckling a little bit because this is the third episode I've done now where he... I have a quote revealing which story he thought was his favorite, which was his best (laughs) one. Um, But it makes sense. You know, he had a very long career. Uh, In 1962, he was, I think, still writing them. So he had some of them still ahead of ahead of him. But he he had over 500 stories if you count everything he did. So um, it's natural that he might change his mind over the years. But he, he's mentioned Lost in the Andes being a favorite. He's mentioned Land of the Totem Poles and this one. So now, now that I've got three of these down, I, I'm going to keep paying attention to these quotes. Um, but he said, the one story I always liked best was in old California. I created an atmosphere and then kept that atmosphere through the whole story. Composing these stories is like writing music. You've got to have the beat and keep the whole thing going. And I think that's fair. I think he did do a great job of maintaining a certain dreamlike, hyper-realistic, pining atmosphere in this one. 
And then um, you and I did Dangerous Disguise a little while ago. We talked at length about how that was the last story that he got away with using real humans on. And I, I bet you can guess that he wished he could have done it for this one, right? Because these, the characters in this. They are so stunningly human. And I was just in awe. Well, when we talk about our favorite panels, I'm going to bring up panels where he depicted these animal human, but with specifically human people features. Yeah, absolutely. I, I might say that these characters are more human than the humans in Dangerous Disguise in some ways, because a lot of those were very caricatured, you know, um, just just some, we had some exaggerated figures and some like archetypes like the femme fatale, but I, I think he's going for a real like storybook romance in this one. And, and that's the other fascinating thing to me that this is a romance. This this is almost, a, this could be a romance novel. Donald and the nephews are, are at times kind of incidental to the story. It, it sometimes seems like they're only there to perpetuate the romance instead of the other way around, the way ancillary characters serve the story of the ducks. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Let's see. Barks was also known to talk about the setting. He did say for this one, no settings are taken from life, but the type of houses and terrain are recognizably local. And then can we list a couple of the titles from around the world, Sarah? Sure. Do you want me to start? Yeah. Why don't you go with the, the you know, location specific titles? Sure. In, um, Mexico and Spain had different the the Spanish and the Mexican even though they're you know ostensibly the same language they've come out with different titles where Mexico's is in la antigua california and Spain's is la vieja california and you and I had talked previously about the word antigua where it 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 the definition is more ancient but in this specific meaning it's more like antique um whereas vieja california is more old which is a direct translation right yeah that's the connotation that i feel like they're going for there um and then we have a lot of mostly straight up translations of in old california this is a pretty important title to keep consistent so um, we've got ones like Den- the Danish is uh, Idet Gode Gamla Californian. Um, French is Retour en Californie, which is back to California. Germany is a direct one, Im Alten Californien. The only one that stuck out to me was just Italy is Paperino nel tempo che fu would be Donald in the past, kind of kind of weirdly omitting uh, California. So we're we're almost ready to start talking about the story <laughs> itself. But but the, the thing that I haven't even mentioned yet is that this is kind of oddly a, a literary adaptation. We've, we've got Barks basically adapting this really well-known piece of literature, a story called Ramona that was written in the late 19th century by Helen Hunt Jackson. So Helen Hunt Jackson wrote this historical novel called Ramona that was, um, this is very loosely based on it, but you can, I think, see the bones of it, right? So it's, it's a story of this. So, so it's the story of a, of a half Scots Irish, half Native American orphan and her lover. And it's basically like a, a Romeo and Juliet doomed love type of story. And, and she had this mission 
um, that was to get Americans to reconsider their treatment of Native Americans. Um, she really wanted to like affect policy and, and benefit welfare for, for Native Americans. And, and I think that's pretty awesome. You know, it's definitely going to look pretty dated based on like our future version, but, but it was from a very progressive, very idealistic mindset at the time. It was, it was essentially supposed to be like a native equivalent of Uncle Tom's Cabin, which again was a very progressive minded work at the time. And so Ramona was very personal for Carl Barks, right? Because they, the, his, his community of San Jacinto would do this pageant every year that is locally famous and, and is somewhat famous around the world because it's the longest running outdoor pageant in the United States. Um, next year is going to be its centennial, 100, 100th anniversary. And the venue that it's at is actually called the Ramona Bowl. So I, I thought that was pretty interesting. I didn't know anything about this, Sarah, when I went to do the episode. Yeah, I. Um, it felt when I was reading it before I knew anything about Ramona that the rodeo felt different. It didn't feel like a rodeo in the way that we understood it. So I was wondering maybe is this is this part of um you know this the Spanish culture of the time, Mexican culture, what was going on with that. But as an homage to a beloved childhood festival, sure, that sounds yeah. right. Yeah, and and I think Barks talked about you know, it was kind of like his little inside joke. He wanted um, these these stories. He didn't get credit for them, but um, I think he liked the idea that his neighbors could see this on the newsstand and recognize, uh, you know, local stuff, local elements. And he, they did mention, but it was a, just a quick throwaway reference, Ramona. Right. Yeah, you're right. They mentioned that. So so there, there's a lot to talk about. Why don't we go ahead and get into the meat of the story unless you had any other comments? Let's go. So in old California opens up on that most Californian of occurrences, a terrible traffic jam. This is something that we see in a few Bark stories. He complains a lot about progress that you're about just turned 50 as he wrote this, right? So this is very easy for me to picture, but, but Donald and the nephews are in that kind of traffic jam where you're like risking life and limb and it feels very unpleasant to be in and they have to take a side road to escape what they call the honking jam. And this gets the kids to talking about what life was like in California before before the automobile took over. And it does specifically call out that they're sightseeing near Los Angeles. So we don't have Duckburg like formally. I don't think it's established as their hometown at this point. Sarah, he's referenced like Burbank a few times, but um, but the Ducks have always basically been Californian in his stories. I've gotten that feeling from the ones that I've read too. So Donald is kind of, he's taken them on the next page down this like sleepy back road and they're talking very, he's talking very wistfully and nostalgically about what the land used to be like. And, and he's, he's really talking about the time before it was the United States, right? They don't, he doesn't ever explicitly say this other than to say that big Spanish ranchos covered thousands of acres. They talk about all the wildlife and and game that were there. They talk about the Indians, the Native Americans that 
lived in the area. There is a panel where the boys, one of the boys asks, weren't they savage Indians, Uncle Donald? And, and he reassures them that no, these guys were figured that having fun was more fun than fighting. And he characterizes them as being smart. I think he's talking about everyone in this era, not explicitly the Indians, because he talks about them building the missions that you've heard about and pointing out a mission here. And this is really complicated, Sarah, because um, th this is like a really interesting whitewashing, glossing over of Ca California, like, like the rest of the United States, had some very rough history, right? And, and some terrible exploitation. But Sorry, I'm, I'm getting stuck on this, right? Because this is, <laughs> this is such a glossing of the past. But in some ways, the, the area was more, I think, mixed and integrated back when it was old Mexico. Um, what struck me about this section was that Indians lived in villages along the streams and danced and made whoopee every few minutes. And what does that mean? When you sent me the article about Ramona and about how it was meant to be, you know, the Uncle Tom's cabin, but for Native Americans of its time and, and how it didn't actually catch on that way, it made me think of this characterization of Native Americans as him trying. He he doesn't have the level of acceptance, of um, understanding what's the history, how the U.S. has uh, wronged Native Americans. But I get the feeling that he thinks he's doing a good job by saying, no, they're not savages. They're this completely other insert paternalistic right. description here. Yeah, I, this is very paternalistic, but it, but it's very well intentioned. Um, it shows, I would say, a little bit of growth from the story I did a few months ago, Land of the Totem Poles. Um, this this is definitely a high point in his representation of Native <laughs> Americans. It is. It should be said. It's totally in keeping with the average like mindset of the time. Honestly, it's it's probably a little bit more positive than the average mindset of its time because it doesn't. I mean, we'll we'll get to those characters soon. But um, you asked about making whoopee. Merriam-Webster says that informal, old-fashioned is to have noisy fun, and I think that that's how I read it. It's it's like war whooping, you know. It's the cliched like um, making making that kind of noise and just having a good time. So you know, the, this page ends with them transitioning back. So he, he kind of talks about what became of California um, as they pass a bunch of noisy billboards, and he's like, "Well, you know." Gold was discovered in 1848 in California, and Barks is basically tracing that as the, the time when California <laughs> took a turn for the worse, right? Because it drew in all these people and all this development. Um, but the ducks continue to drive deeper into the backcountry, and they're just sightseeing, and they pass one of these local references that we mentioned, where they, they talk about seeing the town where Ramona once lived, right? Clearly, she's not a fictional character in this. She's like a historical person. 
They talk about how they would have loved to have met her. They pass a sign that says there's the Ramona pageant bowl. And they're distracted by a sign talking about an Indian reservation. And the ducks crash really brutally into a large boulder. It's a pretty violent looking crash. This would probably kill the ducks. So we got some cartoon logic here. But when the ducks come to, they're at that reservation and they've been taken to see the medicine man. And they're given this like medicine that has kind of a smoky look to it. Um, the, the Indians, Sarah, what, what do you notice? Would you describe the Native Americans for us? They're, they're wearing, the quote unquote medicine man is wearing a vest. It has the fringes. It appears to be leather, kind of a stereotypical modern depiction of <laughs> what white Americans think Native Americans wear. Uh, it appears to be leather, but then in the next panel, the medicine man or somebody else is handing over the herbs that the ducks are supposed to drink. And you see that Native American man from behind, and it has an A1 flower stitched on. I think it's supposed to have been made from an old sack, right? Right, which is just, uh, can they just wear clothes? I mean, I think it's supposed to represent the the poverty that many of them are in. But it's... But without the context to tell us this is poverty, you know, we don't understand, like, do they choose to live this way? Are they stuck in this way because of decades of policies? Of course, because they all assume context. It was very frustrating for me, as well as the way that they're depicted, their language is depicted, right? It makes them appear to be less fluent in English. We all know what less fluency means. It means less intelligent to that kind of a an audience. It's just very frustrating today. Yeah, I think that's understandable. You know, their their dialect is basically Hollywood Indian, Hollywood native. And it was so expected that even in a story like Land of the Totem Poles, where the ducks encounter a group of natives that have never met outsiders, he still has them speak in this kind of English, which obviously doesn't make any sense. So this was like a this deeply ingrained trope. But this is, we're getting the stereotype of the happy Indian. They're all very, they're very simple. They're happy. They're very pleasant. Um, It's very paternalistic. Someone who's smarter than me can argue whether it's more or less harmful than the kind of stereotype that we usually were presented with. But the ducks basically start to feel the effects of these herbs right away as the natives are doing these like whooping noises around them. And as they kind of fall into this fever dream, one of the nephews, they're talking about how I feel sleepy, like I'm sort of going into a dream. And one of the nephews says, I feel like we're living in a time long, long ago. Like this is the part of the story that I I had trouble getting past as a kid, right? Because this is such a like fantastical thing to just kind of hand wave past. I thought it was a very weird transition and it really, it it pulls me out of this story a bit. Oh, card. It makes so much sense to me in cartoon logic. Right. At the time, you know, child me would have been going right along with it. Of course, that's what happens when you're about to fall into a drugged sleep. Sure. Right. And and what I liked about these comics is that Barks doesn't usually do like the, the true cartoon logic, you know, like anvils and stuff. There's like a small degree um, more realism. 
than that. But anyway. Um, the transition the- is really interesting because he's got them doing their weird dancing, Hollywood, right. Native American dancing in silhouette in their clothes that they have on in the modern day. And then as they're falling asleep, they're still doing even more exaggerated into those shapes, those dancing shapes. But it's very clear that the silhouetted people are not wearing modern clothes. I Right. <laughs> as much as I hated it from a depiction of Native Americans standpoint, it made sense logically in that yeah. kind of logic, right? Right. There, and you see the transition happening. It, it took me along with it. It wasn't just poof all of a sudden. It took me along with it. Nice. So that's interesting. This transition works a lot better for you than it does for me. Um, it is It is drawn lovely. So as we transition with the ducks, you know, it's clear to the reader that they have gone back to long ago, that we see now this, this reservation is now a native village. The Indians are dressed the way we might have stereotypically guessed they would a uh, hundred years before. The architecture of their housing has changed. Yeah, I do. I do appreciate that it looks like it looks like the buildings. I didn't like research it or anything, but it looks more realistic than him just throwing up a bunch of teepees. You know, they're like more permanent structures than that, which I think would have been the case around then. And so the ducks go back to look at their car and they're basically wandering through what is now a wilderness and they're puzzling over what has become of the car. Why do they see nothing but cattle and antelopes? You know, it's taking them a long time to figure out what's happened. I did want to go back to the the architecture. I don't think that it would have been teepees in this part of the country. That's a very specific to a group of tribes yeah in a different part of the country so i wonder if he you were telling me off mic that it felt like even though it was kind of cringy in the depiction with the native americans in the other one that you had read it was still very clear he had done a lot of research um and and got some details very right so i wonder how much was a of this where he was like okay what kind of dwellings did the people of this time period in this part of the country and then you know he couldn't he couldn't bother to like portray them with like any intelligence but he could accurately draw a roundhouse with a thatched roof for them yeah i want to i want to um say that without doing the research i suspect that he made sure to get these details right that's just my read. And I and I think he was very well-intentioned with this one. I think like Helen Hunt Jackson's story, who, which has probably not aged well, that he was really going for, um, for what would pass for a, a respectful, kind representation in a kid's comic. Right. Um, you tried. Yeah. <laughs> he tried. So the ducks continue to walk through the wilderness and and they it takes them noticing that the mountains that they saw before on their drive are now covered with timber in the manner that they must have been 100 years before um they haven't quite connected the dots but um but they're going to go back and see that medicine man um and figure out why he's made their car disappear and and on the way donald encounters a grizzly bear in a place where he said oh they've been extinct here for 80 years and so you know they're they're hiding behind a rock from these grizzlies and they're just 
putting it together that they're seeing wild bears, antelopes, no roads, no towns. Uh, they kind of figure out retroactively that the, the natives look different. Um, they were wearing buckskin clothes. Oh, they reference the house as being adobe huts. And one of the nephews establishes and he, he calls it out. We are dreaming that we're in old California. So, so this is this is pretty weird, right? This is interesting. We've got this story now where we're, we're given the setup that the ducks are having a dream and they know that they're in a dream and uh, they're going to go forward and basically have the attitude of let's go ahead and enjoy this shared dream while we've got it. So Donald is, is reflecting. He's, he's going to agree with them. You know, this dream business does seem possible they've, that they've woken up a hundred years ago. One of the nephews calls out that now we're in the days of the missions and the ranch and the, the ranchos and the pretty senoritas like Ramona. So they decide to get into the spirit of old California. This is kind of that tourism, right? They're, they're going to go ahead and be tourists in the past. And Donald calls out, hey, the nice thing about a dream is that you can never get hurt. But that's immediately proven wrong as a bull charges into him as he's crossing a field. So they're, they're like figuring out, okay, this isn't like the regular kind of dream. We need to be, we need to be careful. And so they decide to make their way through the grasslands, watching out for bulls, hiding in trees. At some point, they need to like maneuver past a field full of bulls. So that Donald creates like a little straw dummy and all the uh, bulls zero in on him and crash into each other, landing in a big old heap. It's a pretty funny little bit. Pretty clever, too. Yeah. And after a while, you know, they're becoming really tired. Um, they're really yearning to see some some kind of a settlement. And eventually they come across the old rancho that they passed that morning. But now it is in its full glory as it would have looked a century before. So Donald speculates that, you know, it's probably occupied by an old Spanish Don and his family and their Indian servants. Oh. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, we've got this probably pretty accurate representation of the politics, the culture of the area, right? You've got this mix of people from Castilian Spain. You've got people who are like mestizos that are what we would call Mexican. You've got full natives. This is the dynamic that's presented in Ramona. I just... I just hated that there was, it's probably accurate, but I also just hated how presented without commentary, their quote unquote Indian servant. Yeah, it's, it's not a great look. And, and I guess this is kind of a part two where it, it strays from the ethos of Ramona itself, right? Because Ramona, from what I, I didn't read Ramona, but my Cliff's Notes understanding of it is that it really does try to center um, the story around a woman who has some native heritage and, and comes to know that and accept that. And I don't think that's the case for the main woman that we're going to meet here. But the ducks, the ducks decide that they can't approach this just asking for the food that they're starving for. So Donald convinces them that they've got to make them think that we're travelers dropping by in an old California style. So they, they go in dancing and singing like an old, um, Mexican style, yai yai yai, ditty. It's very cringy. It's very awkward. I did not like this part as a kid. Like, it's so true to Donald's character, right? Where he just makes assumptions instead of asks questions. 
Yeah. It feels like the kids are kind of on vacation from their critical thinking brain too, because usually they're the ones that are like, uh, I don't think that's how it goes, Uncle Donald. But they're just like, oh, sure, I'll believe anything. You're the expert on old California. Let's go. Yay, 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 yay. Right. And he did mention that he read a book about it at the beginning. Right. So I guess that's why he's an expert. And I'll note that despite how I how it struck me, I, I think it's supposed to read as very charming, like naively charming is how I think it's supposed to read. And so now we're going to come to a segment where we meet, we meet the members of the Hacienda, we meet the people at this rancho, and it is everything to do with the rancho is just beautifully drawn, right? Like we've got some lavish, lovely detail, um, the interior, the exterior, the people, the fiesta that we're going to get to meet. This is a real highlight of the story. And I think it's a big part of what people love about this one, Sarah. It's so evocative. You and, and communicative. It, and this is where he gets into that, like just barks at his best and how he is just such a great communicator in the medium of of drawing and it's it's so simple and concise um and i just i just loved it i loved the art in this part yeah no no argument here this art is gorgeous and this is kind of where we meet the main characters of the story in a way. And we're going to get introduced to them very quickly. And like you said, we're going to, just from looking at them, we're going to know immediately what they're like. You know, we we see a young woman um, talking to her mother, a, a lovely young woman talking to her mother, who's the Donia. She's very stern looking. Donald approaches uh, a portly native woman who must be one of these servants. He greets her by saying, Hiya Pocahontas. Oh. I, I'm just quoting this, right? I'm going to say, I'm going to say his line. He says, Hiya Pocahontas, tell the head man we've come to dance the fandango at his fiesta. This doesn't read the same way it does today after you know, we we had a couple of years ago, Donald Trump using this as a slur. This this has always been used as a little bit of a an insult or a casual, but it's it's meant to be like a casual hiya here. Um, it wouldn't read that right. way today, obviously. Right. And she is a no-nonsense woman. She asks, you know, Fiesta, and she asks him, why would he think that, I'll read the Don's full name because it's great, Don Gaspar Fernando Ignacio de Sepulveda y Verdugo de Buenaventura gives, why does he give a Fiesta? And Sarah, do you know what the joke here is with the name, apart from it being one of those classically long Spanish names? Um, I mean, no, that's the only one that I picked up on. I mean, that that part is great, but um there are a couple of local there are a couple of local roads embedded in that oh. name. Sepulveda is a famous Southern California. I think Buenaventura as well. That's just something he threw in for locals. I, I lived most of my life in Northern California, but I did spend a little bit of time. I, I spent a summer in, in Santa Barbara and, and tooling around down South. So, and so I go did. ahead. So, you know, Donald is kind of realizing 
he's gotten off on the wrong foot. He's just saying that, you know, he really wanted one of their famous barbecues with free eats. He's like making all these assumptions about about how life works then. And and the Don has been listening from the other side of the door. He has realized that these are not dangerous people. They're just some bewildered boys, lost and hungry. He puts away his shotgun, which he is very reasonably holding, and he greets them warmly, saying that the table of Don Gaspar is always loaded for those who come in friendliness. And, and a lot of this story now is going to be kind of about this like friendliness and hospitality. Mm-hmm. Because um, the members of the rancho are going to show them some tremendous hospitality. And you can see that Barks loves this idea, right? The the young woman calls out to bring them food and drink and to sit and the, the Don calls out for beds. The Donia calls out for clean linens and hot tubs for the, for the dusty travelers, which the nephews are very cutely going to be dismayed at being made to take a bath. And we get this really lovely little panel that's almost like a almost like a movie poster or the cover of a romance novel on this page, um, where he highlights he, Bark's narration box says, "Do you do you want to read the narration box for us, Sarah?" Just like that, Donald and his nephews from the year 1951 become guests of people who lived in the romantic days of long ago. This panel it has. This is my favorite panel oh. of of this comic. Oh yeah, it has it, it and it feels very much like a telenovela, right? You have Don Gaspar, and he's he has you know a full head of hair like a human would, and a little handlebar mustache, but a very long snoot, and kind of some floppy ears like a dog. But even even that, you get the feeling that like this man is considered handsome he is handsome and he is he has a presence to him he is very masculine but he's a dog right and and yeah he has that little like half warm smile and then the senora and she has um an old traditional spanish head covering that you can tell is very old-fashioned at that point but that's who she is and then you have tina the quote-unquote indian servant and i can i just say i want tina to give me a hug i bet she gives the best hugs and then you have panchita who is wearing a a big Spanish rose in her hair and, and, and her hair is long and, and black with that little, little line of blue that marks that it's shiny, right? That's how black hair shines in comics. And then in the background, you have Rolando, the vaquero, and he's, you see a silhouette of him on a horse, lassoing a bull with these really long, dangerous horns. This is art. This is a masterpiece. And they're all animals. <laughs> yeah. I will never get over how good Carl Barks is giving human traits to animals and giving animal traits to humans and vice versa, right? Like both mm-hmm. of these, he is an expert at. Yeah, very well said. This is a stunning panel. It sets up so much. I only My only complaint is that it's not bigger. You know, this should have been like a, a half page or a full page panel. 
I can just see it as a telenovela, like the credits, like like zooming in on mm-hmm. each face as they travel across the screen. Yeah, it, it looks like a playbill. You know, there's been a couple of nice covers adapted out of this panel. And for the rest of, for much of the rest of the story, you know, we just get to kind of live alongside these people and we get to um, learn about the dynamic between them. And and we find out that, you know, the Rancho is in the process of the, the rodeo, which is the roundup of the wild cattle. We we learn about the cattle trade. We learn, we see that the vaqueros are doing what they do, rounding up strays. Um, we get to see Rolando, finally, who who is arguably the hero, right? Um, right. And, Car- and Karl Barks trains like a hero's camera on him, right? We, we get to see him at his at his job just being spectacular um and then the the ducks compare him to a famous modern day cowboy gene autry um and so we're we're in the know that the ducks are thinking about all these to them modern westerns that now feel very antiquated and then we get our little moment of peril where a bull heads straight for panchita and the ducks and Panchita all have to flee. Um, and, and Panchita gets thrown from her horse when she when it steps in a gopher hole. Um, and, and we've got Donald trying to save the day. He gets it up to a little bit of buffoonery, getting pulled behind the bull. But ultimately, R- Rolando ends up rescuing her. Um, and Donald. And Donald, yes. And it's a, a great setup that we we can see that Panchita is smitten with Rolando, and he's that sort of silent cowboy type. He clearly feels the same way about her. And and the nephews here, it's very cute. Tell me about the nephews, Sarah. They're off in the corner. The panel has a a, a bull with stars coming out of its its head, like it's you know been subdued. And um, Panchita is saying. Oh, Rolando, I think you are wonderful. And he's just like, he's just got those little lines of emotion coming out. Like you said, the strong, silent type. And in the background, there's Donald kind of knocked out, but safe. And the little boys are like, it's just like in the movies, only nicer. And they have little hearts coming out of their head. They're so in love with the love that they're seeing in this scene. It's interesting for us to be the spectators of something that the ducks are spectators of too, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting to see them in this like romantic mold when he'll usually make them, you know, little boys who think love um, is icky. But right. this is what this is what we need. It's very cute. It's it's a romance. It's it's such a we, it's such an oddity. We've got this we've got this little romance novel here. And so um, we transitioned that evening to kind of a typical night with the vaqueros singing um, at the campfire. It's a very funny little song, El Toro Higo Flapo. <laughs> um, and and we're made to know that Rolando has the finest of all the singing voices. Um, and the Donald... squarest of all the jaws. Oh, oh my yeah. goodness. <laughs> Again, he is, he immediately stands out as like movie star handsome, despite being a dog. And Panchita is, is just 
stunningly beautiful despite being a dog character she looks 99% human in this he he made them as human as he possibly could and we get this funny moment and touching moment where Donald offers to teach him a new cowboy song and uh, he kind of he, he kind of looks a little bit um, shy and says you know maybe there's someone that would like to hear me sing them referring of course to Panchita and that look is so swoon worthy uh-huh <laughs> if if like that's the kind of like modern day boy band like oh shy i'm bashful but i'm also very handsome and he was putting this look on dogs in the 1950s he was really ahead of his time right yeah because he's like he is that sort of boy band or again it's that like back then this would have been the sensitive cowboy trope where he's he's tough and he can handle himself but he's sweet and shy and has a lovely singing voice um that this this story more than most really feels like it is geared towards a more female readership to me you know it has it has something for everybody right it has it has the it has the nostalgia for the older men it has the 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 dreamy romance um and the 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 bashful strong silent hero for the boy likers and it has the kids on an adventure for the uh, and you're on the adventure with them it just it has something for everybody right and and we're about to get this scene where they are going to have a big fiesta to to finish the rodeo the rodeo and th- this is part of what makes me think that right because the the amount of detail that he pays with the the dresses and the suits is something that you would as- associate with like a, a period piece that is stereotypically more for women right like it, again it's something anyone can enjoy but the stereotype is that his boy readers probably wouldn't have been the the people who would have cared about him making these lovely dresses and so forth and and boy the the banquet the fiesta is really something to see he says guests come from leagues away rancheros vaqueros padres indians caballeros it's very poetic. We see all of these people and we get introduced on the next page to the, the pretty senoritas coming and he tells us that Panchita is the prettiest of all. And we get again the nephews as audience surrogates. They're very excited to see her and they're looking around for Rolando because they want to see him ask her to dance the fandango. And then we meet the monkey wrench. We through the nephews, are outraged to see a man who is named Don Porco de Lardo, a rich ranchero that the senora has chosen to be Panchito's husband. And he is a pig. He is not conventionally attractive. He looks older. And she's bowing her head because she is very clearly just not into him. She, yes. she's she's sad about having to give the first dance to him right and to be engaged betrothed to him um and the nephews are are very upset as audience surrogates they they're thinking now oh, things were too perfect this don porco de lardo i i believe this might be the first appearance of carl bark's quote pig-faced villain he will use this archetype in a lot of comics going forward he's like a tier two villain 
going forward. He's he gets named at some point, I think, Argus McSwine. And he never like rises to the level of villainy of like the Beagle Boys and Flintheart Glomgold and Magicka Dispel, who are Bark's most famous villains. But when Bark's doesn't want to use someone else and he just needs kind of a generic shifty person, he's going to use this pig faced villain archetype. And so, you know, the nephews are, of course, outraged. They're talking to Tina um, about why Rolando can't marry Panchita. And she says that, you know, daughters of the grandees do not marry poor vaqueros. So we've got this little class element here. This is this is set up as something that that, that we can't overcome it without overcoming the class difference. This next page is is so lovely. It's more of this beautiful fiesta. And Sarah, do you notice how little the ducks appear here? Oh, you're the... right. You're right. Only in the very first and the very last panel does even Donald appear. Yeah, it's this is really all about Rolando trying to get the nerve to ask Panchita for a dance. Um, he even reaches for a spur as though he's going to whack him with the spur. And... Panchita is is grateful to Donaldo for having given him the the kick because of course she feels the same way about him. And we have this funny bit. Do you want to tell us about the the funny little bit here with the music? I don't know if this is a real song or not, but it has words that would not make sense at all to right. anybody in the 1840s but it's you'd be a pip on my radar a wow on the video we could sing bebop in a helicopter on our way to a movie show and he's singing this to her and she says the words don't make any sense Rolando but sing some more because she loves him obviously this is a song that Donald taught him to sing to her it's just such a cute moment between them first before that they are dancing and and you can see how beautifully the the layers of Panchita's skirt are are kind of drifting up as as she's being thrown around the dance floor it's just and their faces are turned to each other they're looking at each other they're both very engaged and happy and you can just feel the love between these two cartoon human dogs yes <laughs> absolutely it's very romantic you it's know it's so cute it's it's very surface level because we we have to use all this shorthand to like make clear their feelings so this has happened very quickly of course but i do feel very very engaged oh. and very invested in this romance I don't feel like this has happened very quickly. If you are familiar with the trope, didn't you watch Princess Bride, Mark? Um, These only... kinds of kinds of relationship between the hired hand and the young daughter of the manor develop over months and sometimes years. That's true. We're 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 meant to know that there's been a lot before this. It's it's very sweet. It's lovely. And again, the detail in drawing her dress and the artistry of her dress is very noteworthy for this boy's comic. And this scarves as oh, well. Yeah. yeah. And then we've got, you know, we've got this little moment where the Doña is scolding her for making eyes at Rolando, but Don Porco de Lardo is so confident of his station and the agreement that um, he, he's not even bothered. And he says to let the hired man sing his silly songs. He'll sing a different tune at my wedding. 
<laughs> and then, you know, we've got this moment at the end where we meet a, another guest, an alcalde, uh, which I think is a property owner who is on his way to Monterey. And he mentions offhand that he has room in his coach for four. And, uh, you know, Donald likes this idea because they really are just on vacation. Sure. Why not? So the next morning they get ready to hop in the coach. I'll say, Sarah, that that does really sound lovely riding through ancient California in an old stagecoach. I'm sh I'm sure it would get tiring and my butt would get sore after a few hours, but I think that I would, would agree with you on that. You know, my butt would hurt, but it would be lovely. Right. And I'm sure the alcalde has some pretty good upholstery. <laughs> and so, you know, the nephews are on board, but they, they want to see to Rolando and Panchita before they leave. Um, they're just talking about how the situation, it ain't right. And Donald's like, yeah, but that's none of our business. But then he has a thought and he asks Tina what year they're in. <laughs> <laughs> I love her response. She's like, 1848. My goodness, you're dumb. And, you know, if you are a Californian and you know your history or you're familiar with the football team, the 49ers, you know what it means that they're in 1848. The, the Ducks are so excited because they... They know that they've got this solution to make Rolando rich, and uh, they convey the message that he should ride to the hills beyond Sacramento with a gold pan, because he'll make it just before the gold rush. Uh, the Doña, you know, she softens her heart a bit. She she agrees that, yes, if he's rich, he could marry her and gives him a kiss, and Panchita gives him a kiss, and of course, the nephews line up to get a kiss from Panchita. Which feels kind of great gross that one didn't sit well with me yeah I, I think I read that very innocently I think it's like you know just to me it looks it read very innocent and cute but I'm not going to begrudge you your reading of it yeah <laughs> And so we transition to the alcalde's journey and they're talking about, you know, how rough the road is and they approach the city of Los Angeles soon. And the ducks are just stunned to see the tiny little village. This is, this is a great little reference for the modern reader. And this is what any Californian who's been there long enough, my, my dad loves to reminisce about the peach orchards that were one block away from his my my grandmother's house in down in Cupertino which is now like uh, a couple blocks away from the apple the giant apple building so oh, change I love is doing definitely that in 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 Phoenix, right? Like, oh, this used to be orange groves. Oh, across the street, we used to have cotton fields and I remember them. But now yeah. for miles, we have nothing but suburbs. Right. And it's insufferable if you're not one of those people who, who grew up there. And it's all you can think <laughs> of if you did. Right. And uh, this alcalde is a really nice man because as he gets to talking, he tells Don Donald that he really should be set up with uh, some land. And he says he has a few small grants left and he just straight up offers Donald a few thousand acres of California. And Bark's um, narration box highlights this. He says, just like that, Donald becomes owner of a huge chunk of California. <laughs> and uh, I mean, this, this is what happened with a lot of California, right? Huge land grants given away to the wrong, right people and the wrong people, quote unquote, and people would get chased off the land and 
and the land would get divvied up and marginalized people would get pushed to the outskirts. And um, it's, a, it's a pretty astonishing little little bit of fantasy and history. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the nephews, the ducks all celebrate that they're, they're big rancheros now and they approach their giant tracts of land on foot. They hear some shooting and they encounter a very shifty looking man rustling their cows for their hides. And they very unwisely go up to the man and tell him that, you know, we're the owners, we've got the deeds here. And this guy is, he's that guy that you referenced that's very like hill Billy-ish, very, he does what he's going to do. He immediately commandeers the duck's property. He takes it over and his name is Ezri. And the ducks are just, they're disappointed that they've lost their land. But I think in the back of their mind, they're like, well, this is just a dream. So I guess it's not the end of the world. It's its totally pretty weird, right? To have been given this, this giant tract of land and then immediately lose it. Oh, I looked up where it was. I was like, okay, where exactly is the San Joaquin Valley? Mm, what have they done with it now? Mm. It um, it didn't really look that developed from right now. Suburbs are around it. Yeah, that's that's like the interior. That's like scrubby, not so productive California. I mean, everything in California is gold plated these days, but there are still parts of it that are less developed than others. And and so we've transitioned now, right? We. We headed from Southern California up to Northern California. So this is much more of a Southern California adventure, but, um, but we do have this part, again, California history, all about the gold rush. And they head up to Sutter's Fort. And I don't know if Sutter, that name means much to you, Sarah, but as someone who, yeah, if you, if you went through fourth grade California history, you learned all about Sutter's Fort and Sutter's Mine. So many of the names and the terms are so familiar to me in this. You'd think that I would have been more interested in this story given that, but, um, but this isn't one that I went back to all that often. Is there um, a modern day analog to Sutter's Fort? Does it still exist? What what's going on with Sutter's Fort? Oh yeah, like um, it's you know it's a big tourist destination. You can go and you can pan for gold. You can um, see the sites. Um, as kids, we did this big like week long field trip called Cross Country California, where we stayed at like a summer camp. And one of the stops was to I believe we saw some of the Sutter stuff. There's a whole little tourist industry with the gold rush stuff. And, and who was Sutter? Sutter himself is the guy who like set off the gold rush by by being the person to to first discover gold in 1848. So um, the mill's been like reconstructed, you know. So um, we we've arrived at the outset of the gold rush and um, they're they're very interested in this. And they, they've made plans to buy a gun to get their land back from Esri. And Donald leaves the kids so that he can go do that and uh, pledges that he's not going to be overwhelmed by gold fever. But of course, when he returns, he's got he's got a prospector's pack and he has allowed um, the gold fever to overtake him. Which, I mean, of the two, I think that that's a better choice to become obsessed with. Sure. Yeah. Especially given that this is all a fever dream. <laughs> so we transition to this being a gold rush tale. And uh, the the ducks have some pretty spectacular luck. They got a, a mound of nuggets that would be just worth a, a fantastic amount of money back then. This is more than any prospector would ever hope to find. 
but we see another prospector approach behind them and he's going to pull a con on them. He says, you yunkers digging that kind of stuff, you must be green. Uh, he characterizes that as only 18 karat gold. And he tells them where they can find some 22 karat gold um, around the bend. And uh, when they when they foolishly run around the bend, they realize that the, the man has claim jumped them. Which and, like I you really get into these details about the history, right? Like you don't just, oh, and then people claim jump each other. He illustrates how claim jumping works. Yeah. I didn't I didn't know that. I, I learned from this. I learned a lot from this one. Nice. And and then on the next page, we learn that this man not only has this shifty claim jumper taken their gold, but he is also partnered with Ezri, their old friend, who has heard claim jumping is richer than land jumping. And and so, you know, the ducks are in a spot of trouble here because they're being menaced by Ezri with his gun. And then heroically, just in the nick of time, and, and we only see him by his silhouette at first, Rolando comes to the ducks rescue. And he is just the, the movie star hero. <laughs> the nephew calls him just as big and rough as ever. He takes both men down, Ezri and the claim jumper, and that's pretty tough. Yeah. And so the ducks continue now to work their claim and they've got the they've got Rolando to protect them, the quote best lawyer in the hills. And so they mine a fortune out of this claim. And it's very sweet, right? It's a nice little ending. Donald says there's gold enough for us all. And, and Rolando says for Panchita, the finest rancho in all of California. Um, and they they warmly part ways. Rolando leaves laden with gold and the story takes this wistful turn as they watch him walk away and they comment that Don Gaspar and the Senora and Panchita and Tina they seem so far away now or something like people we read about in an old old book and uh, you know they they decide that they need to take a nap and we finally see the landscape dissolve away and, and we finally see the, the ducks coming too. Do you want to tell us about the this scene here, Sarah? The It's clear that the, the four of them across three beds are stirring. And there's a nurse in the typical 1950s dress with a with the white nursing hat, calling the doctor, saying that they're coming to, and the doctor explains to them what happened. You know, you're in a hospital. Don't you remember your your car struck a rock and some Indians tried to doctor you with dancing and herbs? And Donald's like, oh yeah, sure, the medicine man. Uh, and then the doctor says, he must have given you some powerful stuff. You've been in a coma six weeks. And of course, Donald is just shocked at that news. Yeah, there there was no great way to transition out of this like time travel tale that didn't involve time travel. So Barks told the story that he wanted to. He wanted this to be in a dreamlike state. So he did it. And, and it doesn't work perfectly for me, but it works all right, because that's not the point of the story, right? The point of the story is the wistfulness and the nostalgia. I could have done without the herbs causing it. It could have just been a head wound. Yeah, um, I had that same thought. once you bring in like, oh, it's been six weeks, like that makes it sound like poisoning. And it, you know, even if their intentions were good, it still is pretty nefarious to put somebody in a coma for six 
six weeks. Yeah, I, I agree. That part of the story is a little uncomfortable. I remember that it always kind of disquieted me. I didn't read this one as as frequently as I did others as a kid. And so my memory of it wasn't as sharp because it had been a good 20 years since I read this. And I was like, oh, I, I think I remember. Don't they like get into a horrible car accident and they go into a coma and then some Indians bring them out of the coma? Because I think my mind preferred that scenario or something. <laughs> and so, you know, the ducks are on their way. They recover quickly from their coma at this point. We've got, it's lampshaded by saying modern medicine and modern garages have their points and the ducks are soon on their way. And as they drive off, they pass the old rancho in a, in a very dilapidated state. And uh, the ducks very cutely decide to sing a serenade to them in the manner that they had originally greeted them, that li like little awkward, cringy singing and dancing that they did. And it's a very poetic ending. I'll just read the narrator box says, so once again, Donald and the kids come up the path to the old ranch house. And as they sing, um, we we see a new panel with a couple of other Californians. And it says, and behind them, new California goes by. And the the two drivers are commenting on some some kids singing Spanish songs in front of the old shack. And the man says, you see the nuttiest people in these sticks. So what do you think of the ending there, Sarah? It felt like it was very abrupt. Mm -hmm. I would have liked to see a wedding. <laughs> that would have brought me the resolution that I needed. Because as you said, it did become a story about the rancheros for a while instead of a story about the ducks. Right. Yeah, that would have been neat. You know, his longest stories were 32 pages. If he had had another another four pages or even just one page that just highlighted um, Rolando as he arrived back to greet Panchita. But again, maybe that is an indication that ultimately this is a book for little boys instead of for <laughs> little boys and little girls. All stories are for everybody, Mark. I fully agree, but um, but I do <laughs> I do then. know <laughs> I do know what Barks was probably thinking when he wrote these. Right. I mean, there were points where they really did make an effort to to be expansive, but the, I think they did the thing that one usually does by telling a story for boys. Boys are are considered the default, and so you've just made a story for everyone. Right. 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 I think it would have been a really good way to end this story with some symmetry if they did go back with Rolando to the ranch, have a wedding scene, go back and visit the Indians, and then wake up in the hospital. Yeah. There'd be some nice symmetry there. I think it would have been neat to see some almost like spectral versions of the, um, the people of the ranchero having oh. the wedding as the <gasps> ducks. Oh, you just gave me goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> Cause you could have you could have done it both in one. Like maybe we didn't need that little throwaway panel of the um goofball Californians. Maybe that could have been the wedding party. Oh, that would have been so good. So much better than my idea. Regardless, it's it's a lovely little story. I totally understand why people love this one. 
you know, it's, it stands out and people are going to remember out of the like scores and scores of stories he did. Some of them really stand out as distinct, right? Dangerous Disguise is, is unique for the reasons that it's unique. Um, Voodoo Hoodoo was, was unique. Um, say what you will, but it was a very horrific, unforgettable story. And this one just stands apart as like his most nostalgic and romantic story. So I get why people love this one. What do you think? I always, when you tell me what ratings some of the stories have gotten, I'm always kind of shocked and a little bit dismayed because you do tend to bring me on for the heavier, more problematic stuff. And I, a lot of them score so highly. And so the ones that, that we read that are just, just as fine today as they would have been, you know, back then tend to not in my limited experience would you say that that's accurate yeah i mean you're getting such a like weird variety of them right because i've I've had you on for a number of these but but he has a ton of stories so i might have to just pick a few like i might have to think about what is a good representation of his overall i'll think about like right six or eight, you know, must reads to make sure that you've got a rounded picture. I I know I don't have a rounded picture, but it also does feel like so many of the ones that I've read specifically so I can help process the problematic elements score dismayingly high. But for this one, I can see how it's scored so high, right? Like the people that have read it very, you know, not everybody has my sensibility. So they're not going to have the problems with it that I have. And I, I understand that about humans. And I can see how this one would appeal to humans. And, you know, I talk about them like they're a separate species. Right, right. But, like you're a robot <laughs> studying them. Like, like I'm a robot studying them. Exactly. What do you think? Does this one get? Do you think this one gets a little bit of credit for trying hard or is that not enough? I think with today's sensibilities, no, absolutely not. And thought leaders will point to this is how this damaged relationships between Native Americans. This specific thing has caused this damage. And they can point to ways that even these slightly better representations are still extremely harmful. I think from, well, he was trying and maybe doing the best he could at the time. I think it's better than not trying, but we can still see the effects of the harm that such paternalism has caused. So I wouldn't credit him with being progressive even for his time, but I can recognize that this was progressive for his time. Recognize the effort. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean it worked. Um right. yeah, I, that's important to recognize, right? Because even even well-meaning quote like positive stereotypes can still be harmful. How about the story itself? You know, we both had some really positive things to say about it, right? What do you what's your overall impression? I really liked it. I really thought it was cute. I really liked it. I was shipping Panchita and Rolando. Oh, yeah. Um, I I loved that the boys just kind of got to go on an adventure instead of be the adult in a situation. Um, That's true. I, I did 
I did enjoy it aside from the I think you could have taken out the Native American people completely that whole they they didn't even need to be there you could have had the exact same story with head wounds yeah I agree it feels like he wanted to have them um because of the like the fact that Ramona is it's it's so central right. to Ramona but I I feel like we lose you know he never goes plays with Ramona's central conceit where Panchita should have at some point been identified as having been part native I don't see her as being coded that way at any point right she to me she was Spanish not Mexican especially because we see both of her parents right and they're very clearly Spanish Right. I do read Rolando, though, as Mestizo. I did see him as either a Mexican or a mixed character. So I could see that. That that was my reading of it. I don't think I'm stretching I, because, you know, we, we have the like class element of it. And that that matches. Right. He's a vaquero. Mm-hmm. And, and I did like Tina. Mm-hmm. You know, she she can stay. But the the tribe, I think. Yeah, it's it's not great that she's, quote, just a servant, but it is true to life, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But I liked her. I thought she was, I liked her directness. I want her to give me hugs. Yeah, and (laughs) I thought it was refreshing that, like, a fat character wasn't played for, she wasn't, she's very, she's very large, but she's also not, it's not played for laughs. And she's, she's so maternal. And she's allowed to have a sense of control over the situation, right? You get the feeling that she runs the the rancho, like the inside of it. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think this is a really lovely story. I've been pretty clear that it's it's not one of my favorites. Like I don't go back to this one all the time, but I do feel like it's one that I can appreciate much more as an adult than I can as a kid. Because I'm seeing, I'm seeing the detail that he yeah, I'm just I'm seeing the attention to detail that he paid with um, elements that wouldn't have interested me as a kid, like how lovely everything at the fiesta looked, the romance, you know, it wasn't what I was about as a nine and 10 year old. Right. Is there a practice of families reading these together, like a mother and a son, maybe that maybe back then this would have been a geared toward more of that than individual reading? I think that the expectation back then for comics is that they were just kids, right? You you read them, you were a kid, he was writing them for kids. I, I think he wrote and drew what he thought he would enjoy. And he pointedly tried never to talk down to kids. Like that's something that really comes out and that he has said. Um, a lot of fans, of course, grew up reading these to their children. You know, I've read, I've read these to my own kids. I love reading them to my kids. No one ever read them to or with me. Uh, but, you know, I just, I discovered them for myself at the newsstand. But yeah, this one seems like one that that a parent could enjoy more than many reading to their kids. Yeah, it seems like it has several layers. It it seems like the first one that's written at that kind of a level to appeal to adult adults, right? It has the romance, it has the nostalgia. And it's yeah. not just a history lesson, it is nostalgia. It is very nostalgic. It's very wistful. And I think what you're hitting on is that he really wrote it for himself. You know, this is obviously like a very personal one. You know, he liked to draw these more human characters in these more human situations. So every once in a while, he steered that 
where he thought he could go with it. And uh, yeah, I think he had a great time doing this. Any other thoughts or I can transition into talking about the consensus? Of course, the kind of anarchist, socialist, anti-capitalist in me thought that the the class struggle being solved by just giving Rolando a chance to make money was hilarious because it felt like he was able to buy Panchita. Obviously, right. she was a willing participant in this, but because money was so central to it, my notes say everyone gets rich and Rolando has enough to buy or afford to marry Panchita. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And uh, people who tell you money can't solve your problems are wrong, right? Like They're wrong. 99 out of 100 times, people's problems have to do with the lack of money. So this feels like a very good highlighting of that. Um, yeah. You know what I just remembered? I didn't comment on how much I liked seeing Panchita out at the rodeo. You know, she was like dressed for it. She was obviously a very capable rider. Um, she looked awesome, right? She she had multiple outfits throughout the course of this, but um, she didn't do anything wrong. Uh, it, it was her horse that stumbled in a gopher hole. You know, she like she still needed to be saved. Yes, because that's the old like Hollywood archetype. But I do like that she, she, he really went out of his way to present her as very capable. She, you're right. She's wearing a pantsuit. She's wearing spurs. And yeah, she, she didn't fall off her horse because she's incapable. It was just a, an accident. Yeah. And, and again, she looks great. Almost as good as she does in her beautiful dress. I mean, pantsuits are coming back around. So I would say that. Yeah, she looks really great. And it's gorgeous. It's still very feminine, but also, you know, we have this stereotype of, you know, women could ride horses, but they had to ride side saddled. Nope, right. She gets pants, no problem. I yeah, love it. Look at her in the panel where her horse rears as the bull's coming. I mean, she is steady as a rock. Oh, yeah. That's an excellent thing to notice, Mark holding the horse with one rein pointing back over her shoulder. Yeah, I really liked that. I, I really liked, I found Panchita and Rolando delightful in this. Mm -hmm. So I've mentioned, you know, a few times that the community loves this one. It is rated super high on Index currently and likely forever. It has a rating of seven out of all 40,000 some stories. That's good for 8.5 out of 10. I like it. I think it's great. I guess it is like if I think about what are the all-time classic Donald Duck stories, this this has got to be a top 10 out of all the Donald Duck adventures. Probably wouldn't if I thought about the Donald and Scrooge stories, I don't think I'd have it in the overall top 10 or 20. But it is a great story. It holds up. I mean, as a story, it holds up very well. There's obviously some very dated elements of it that that don't work. Uh, it, it presents this weird, like, fantasy utopian version of old California that was was not a thing. But it was a really interesting look back at the past. It it got some stuff right, and then some stuff it completely muddled up. Of course, it is still a funny animal comic. <laughs> Poor children. Yeah. Yes. 
but a very indelible one. I think we've covered a lot. So, you know, we can, we can close out by, by talking about if there are any, any panels among the many wonderful panels in this story that do stand out as your favorites. I already talked about the one introducing the family, right? but I want to also draw attention to the first introduction of the rodeo after the kids are being carried off into a to a bath. Um, mm-hmm. It just makes me kind of like wistful for home, right? There's a saguaro, so that's not quite geographically accurate. But back home, we had saguaros. Oh, yes. So I'm nostalgic for, for home because of this panel. And it's really great. It, you know, it has a rolling hills, Donald riding a horse himself. I like that panel. And now I have to say that the panel with Panchita riding a horse that's rearing, that that's now among my favorites now that you've pointed it out. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, it is a good one. I have to echo what you said about the playbill, you know, the the poster for the telenovela, basically. That's so awesome. <laughs> There's so much characterization there. And you could almost just pick any of the great panels from the the rodeo or the fiesta because they're all just so gorgeous. Um, I do like the pile of bulls, <laughs> and I do like the old um, the the introduction to the old rancho, um, how we see it both in its new state and old and dilapidated, and uh, just those panel panels that echo each other, you know, in the past and and in the present are are really cool. Um, let's see. And then, you know, specifically, I love her ruffled dress during the fiesta when you can see all mm-hmm. that detail and, and his, his outfit as well. looks awesome. So yeah, thank you so much for talking with me about old California. We're going to get to follow up our awesome podcast where we joined Warren Harmon or you can't guess we're going to cover a Christmas for Shacktown next episode. So I'm very excited to hear what you have to say about, about that one. And um, listeners can let us know what they thought of our remarks and uh, reach out to us on the Facebook page. And we'll look forward to, we'll yodel up with a new episode soon.